As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's episode, we're going to be doing some Champions Leagues reviews. A lot of plurals in there. We've got the UEFA Champions League. We've got the CONCACAF Champions League. Here to help me break down those games, the games from those games, is the champion of Europe. It's Graham Ruffin. Hello, Graham. That is the first time, other than Andy Robertson, that any Scott has been called the champion of Europe, but I will take it. <laughs> How are you? It's a fitting title. I am well. I'm excited to talk about these games. I'm excited to talk about the CONCACAF Champions League as well. To do that, we have, not surprisingly, the champion of the Americas. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. <laughs> hey, Taylor. I'm going to take that with pride. Um, I got a favorable introduction, just like Ryan gives me when, when the three of us are doing a show, so the trend <laughs> yeah. continues. Yeah, and, and the trend of Americans declaring themselves the voice of all of the Americas continues, where I name <laughs> you the voice of the Americas, Joe. So I'm happy that you're willing to roll with that one. We are going to get to the CONCACAF Champions League in a little bit. Uh, I'm very excited to hear about Graham's thoughts, because I don't know if he's ever watched it before, but we'll find that out later on. Right now, we're going to talk about the UEFA Champions League. We're going to start with Real Madrid's victory over Liverpool, a victory that I will say confused me Sort of from start to finish, mostly that first half uh, in particular. Joe, uh, Graham and I talked a little bit about Liverpool at the weekend. For you coming into this game, what were your expectations in terms of the approach for both teams? So for Liverpool, to start with them, I thought they'd come out and play almost exactly like Jurgen Klopp has had this team playing for quite some time. Yeah, it's looked different this season at times without Virgil van Dijk, but they still press high. They still play that high line. And we saw that in this game. We did see that in moments, especially in the first half. But I was confused as well, Taylor, by their lack of pressure in midfield. So they played a 4-3-3. Same, same standard shape, largely the same personnel. Yeah, it was Diogo Jota in for Firmino. Yeah, it was Nabi Keita in for Thiago. But, I mean, it was a familiar look with familiar players. 
against Real Madrid's 4-3-3 that also had largely familiar players with the exception of Adair Militao and Nacho starting over Rafael Varane and Sergio Ramos in, in the, in the back, in the middle of the back line. So it was two mostly familiar squads, but Liverpool, whenever Real Madrid would advance and get the ball into Liverpool's half in the first half, it looked to me like Liverpool was far too passive. And I guess I kind of just dumped way into the tactical game side of this, but that, that resulted in multiple goals, essentially. Yeah, they were, they were a little bit different in the first half, but Liverpool's slowness to react, their, their passivity in midfield resulted in not pressuring Tony Kroos multiple times in that first half. And when you do that, you have to know that you're playing with fire and Liverpool played with fire in that first 45. And Graham, this is a Liverpool team that we talked about at the weekend when they were pretty dominant over Arsenal. It felt like, oh, arrested Trent Alexander-Arnold was the key <laughs> to this team. They've got a midfield. They've got the defense now kind of figured out. The center back pairing seems like they kind of know each other. They have a relationship. And then they come out, look pretty flat, concede two goals. Were you as surprised as I was by this start from Liverpool? Um, I, I wasn't totally surprised given that I, I didn't think watching the, obviously I have the, the British perspective here on, on in terms of what the, the, the broadcasters were saying here and every single one of them, it was Gary Lineker, Peter Crouch, Rio Ferdinand, Michael Owen, all predicted a Liverpool win from this game before the match and a, and a few of them saying it was going to be comfortable and I just felt like th- there wasn't a lot of evidence to, I know they were really good against Arsenal, but a lot of teams look really good against Arsenal this season. Um, I didn't think there was a great deal of evidence to back up that opinion. I thought it was going to be a, a quite a close match. I guess the, the decision from Klopp that, that stood out to me in terms of the lineup was the, the decision to put Naby Keita in, in that midfield yeah. over Thiago Alcantara, who to me, it felt like this was the sort of game that Thiago was was bought for to give Liverpool a little bit of control and, and a little bit of measure in the centre of pitch against, um, high caliber oppositions that he's, he's, he, this was supposed to be where he, where he made a difference. And so put, to put Naby Keita in there, who is a totally different player to, to Thiago, but, but also is, is a bit rusty, hasn't played a lot of football recently. And to put him up against a midfield unit of Casemiro, Kroos and Modric, it was a little bit like Klopp. Do you know who these guys are? Like what Casemiro, especially the form that those three are in for Real Madrid at the moment. Do you know what they do? Do you know how they're going to control this match? And 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 so that was obviously there was a lot of focus on Diogo Jota. I think a lot of people um, gravitated towards that decision, given how he played at the weekend, as the big call. But for me, it was all about Keita, and and um, yeah, it, it, it worked out. It panned out that way during the match with him coming off before half time. And Grant with Navigator, like. As you say, he is an entirely different player to Thiago. What would you say are the benefits or strengths to his game such that they are? And what, why do you think Klopp went for him? What, what do you think is the justification? Because my assumption is that he thought he could maybe do more of the defensive running, but then also transition into attack in a quicker way. That feels like a thing Thiago is very good at as well. So I'm sort of mystified by that one. Yeah, I, th- I think, um, I mean, with, with Keita, it's, it's been quite difficult to, to pinpoint exactly what he does actually since he's coming for Liverpool. But I think energy and, and, and mobility is, as you would say, are probably two of his, his best qualities. So I guess maybe the idea there was that he would, he would press high on, on, on Real Madrid in the, in the center of the pitch. And as, as Joe kind of mentioned earlier, um, Kroos just had way too much space throughout this match. And I guess maybe Keita was supposed to be the one that was on top of him and, and maybe Klopp's, disgruntlement at him not doing that role was was illustrated by the fact he was hooked off before half time. I do wonder whether that's his Liverpool career over, by the way. Like I, I think it, it's getting to that point where he's been there for what? Three seasons now? Has Naby Keita been at Liverpool for? And and it really that feels like right? he's he's never 
um, proven himself. He's never he's never nailed down a, a place in that in that starting lineup, and and it felt last night felt significant. Like he is no longer um, he no longer has the faith of of Klopp, and that's like really important with Jurgen Klopp. So I guess I could maybe see the justification on the defensive side of the ball, but he he just didn't do that during the game, and and Liverpool did improve when Thiago came off off, off the bench, but. Um, I even felt then there was still a lack of intensity from them in the center of the pitch. I, I am with you on the Keita uh, start and the kind of head-scratching performance from him. Also that this might be one of the last times we see him for Liverpool. Uh, Tom Olnut had a tweet uh, that Keita headed a throw straight out of bounds and Thiago had already been warming up at that point. Maybe was going to come on at halftime and I think Klopp was so frustrated by the sloppiness that that's where the substitution came from. But I, I 100% thought it was injury-related in the moment. And then looking back, re-watching bits and pieces of this one, you do, you do see sort of how overwhelmed Liverpool looked at times and I think that substitution makes more sense but I keep going back to why they were overwhelmed and if it was sort of self-inflicted or if there were specific things Madrid were doing Joe for you did you see anything in particular Madrid were doing that was out of the norm or was it just sort of a comprehensive Real Madrid performance in that they have a very good midfield that can hold the ball and find little pockets of space and exploit them really well they had some good runners they have Karim Benzema who's always dangerous and that's just kind of enough Yeah, it didn't really look out of the norm to me. That's not to say they weren't doing specific things to try and disrupt what Liverpool were trying to do defensively, but it was a pretty familiar look from Zinedine Zidane's side. They played, they played a lot of balls out of midfield. Tony Kroos got on the ball a lot. Luka Modric got on the ball in the, in the build up to their third goal in the second half. Casemiro pushed forward, sometimes leaving Modric and Tony Kroos back as the two deeper players in midfield. And then in the front line, it was a lot of Vinicius running in behind, running either outside of Trent Alexander-Arnold and getting down the wing on the very outside of the field, or him running between Trent Alexander-Arnold and Nat Phillips and breaking beyond the back line to try and force Liverpool back or simply to try to break into that space. And then when he would do that or when Asensio would drop in or shift over to the other side with, with Vinicius, Kareem Benzema would slide out to the wing and get on the ball. And he's so good at drifting into those wide spaces pulling out a center back and then creating space centrally. So it was a lot of a very deliberate attacking patterns from Real Madrid, but I don't think it was anything different than what we usually see from them. I I think I agree with you. The only thing that sort of threw me, at least in the first 30 minutes or so, was a thing you mentioned really quickly there was the Casemiro positioning that I am used to him sort of shooting that back line, sitting in, and maybe I'm just sort of missing aspects of his game or haven't seen him enough lately because you're absolutely right that at times it was Tony Cruz and Luka Modric very much the deepest with Casemiro almost as like the number 10, which is not a role that I think of him as playing or particularly thriving in. Do you have an idea of why he he was so mobile? It reminded me of um, another game that I think uh, both Graham and I talked about and Joe and I talked about, uh, the Leipzig game from the weekend with Sabitzer as the holding midfielder, but then also being the furthest forward pretty regularly. I'm wondering why you think they might have done that or if it was just to kind of create some space and pull people apart. So I have two thoughts. First is Casemiro related. I wonder when you push him up in the attack and you lose the ball, you probably want him counterpressing in more more vital areas than you want Luka Modric or Toni Kroos counterpressing in vital areas. So that's my first thought. Casemiro can shift. He can go and win the ball back in ways that maybe Modric and Kroos can't do. And then my other thought, when Real Madrid's in possession and they have the ball a little bit deeper in midfield, I'd rather have Luka Modric and Toni Kroos on the ball, playing long balls out of the back than Casemiro. That's not to say Casemiro can't pass, 
But there's no reality in which I'd say, Casemiro, you ping this 50-yard long ball into Vinicius instead of Tony Cross. You know what I mean? That just is never going to happen. So, yeah, have Casemiro push forward a little bit and then let Modric and Kroos circulate the ball and be those deeper-lying playmakers. I think that's a look that I think that's a look that Zidane likes, and we saw why in this game. Yeah, we also saw Trent Alexander-Arnold, uh, maybe what happens when he doesn't have a full international break of rest. Graham, <laughs> did, did we just fully jinx him with our analysis on the weekend? Yeah, I think we did. I think we did. I think, as you referenced there, I think we also found out that uh, Alexander-Arnold is only effective when he has two weeks between games. Um, wow, this was not one of his best performances at all. Um, no. When you're talking about things that Real Madrid did slightly differently, one of the things that I noticed was... Um, Real Madrid generally their play tends to come down the left side just because they I think primarily because they have better players on that left side you know Mendy is, is uh, you know a natural fullback in the way Lucas Vasquez isn't and then obviously Vinicius was on that side and, and Karim Benzema tends to gravitate a little bit more to the left than the right but in this match one thing I, I noticed in, uh, um, was that they were they were kind of favoring the right side but that that was to kind of pull Liverpool over to the right side to create the space for, I guess, Vinicius on, on, on that wing and, I guess, to expose Alexander-Arnold on that side. So it felt like they were very much targeting Alexander-Arnold and, and his defensive vulnerabilities. He's a great attacker and even in this game, there were a couple of, of really good crosses once Liverpool got a bit of a foothold in the match. But as a defender, yeah, he... he I, I guess he gave... Gareth Southgate must have felt some vindication watching this match. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Yeah, because I think the knock had been, what, that his defensive efforts weren't as good as his attacking efforts, and when the attacking output goes down, he doesn't look as strong of a player from top to bottom. And this did seem like Real Madrid intentionally going at him and trying to make him be more defensive, trying to make him kind of handle 1v1 scenarios. And in those situations, I don't think he had a very strong game, and I think to some extent it was a little bit of a quicksand game. The assist for the second goal, I don't, I don't even have that much blame for him, as strange as that might sound, because it's not like it was a horrific back pass under hit that then led to a red card. We might talk about that later on. Uh, but in this case, it was him trying to make a play. But I think that's almost as big of a problem that when you're desperately trying to make a play, you're no longer doing it out of pattern or practice or a familiar system of I know where I need to play this ball. I know where I can play it safely. You're sort of yeah. scrambling to make a play. And when you do that, you head it straight to Asensio, who then he really wanted to do something, I think, more creative than his eventual goal. You can see him look <laughs> around right before he finishes and then realizes he doesn't have time to like get down and head it in the way one yeah. might in pick up. But I, I don't know which goal was more confusing and interesting to me. Do, did either of you have a preference for which one was more entertaining? I think that I think the the first goal for Real Madrid, the execution. So obviously Liverpool give Kroos far too much space in the in the centre of the of the pitch to pick the pass, and it's a it's a brilliant pass. But from that point on, the way that that Vinicius um, splits the defenders, and I'm not entirely sure in that situation what Phillips and Kabat can do about that. The way he then takes it on his chest. In, in, in his stride and continues his stride and then, and then the finish. I, I felt like the, the execution of that goal from Vinicius was, was phenomenal. And it just, this game and as a whole actually just felt a little bit like, I mean, we'll find out in time whether this is the case, but it, I hope this is the sort of catch up out of the bottle moment for Vinicius because it's felt like that all season. Yeah. Like he's, he's going to 
come good at some point in this season and in his career, he's going to start finishing these chances. And the execution of that, to me, showed me a player who is starting to put it all together. So that, that in terms of the technical execution, that was the goal that I felt was was the, the standout. And Joseph, for you? Yeah, that first goal, I, I agree with everything Graham said. The technique, first of all, on the ball from Tony Kroos is absurd. I don't know... Man, if you're Liverpool, I've been thinking about this. Are you supposed to pressure Tony Kroos? He's really deep in midfield. If you step high, then you leave a gap in your own midfield, and maybe you just get played right through instead of over the top. It's kind of a catch-22 for Liverpool when you have a guy like Tony Kroos that can ping that ball. But Kroos pings the ball, and it's perfect. It's inch-perfect. Vinicius brings it down beautifully and perfectly. And then the finish is clean as well. Everything about that goal from a from a Real Madrid perspective was beautiful. I'm also quite partial to... Vinicius's finish on the third goal, where Real Madrid have that throw in on the right side. Vasquez throws it to Benzema, who then plays it to Modric, who then plays it into the box on the ground for Vinicius. And Vinicius just kind of slaps it with his right foot. It's so casual, and it, he almost doesn't even really bring his foot very high up to, to actually kick it into the goal. It's just very casual, very much oh, nonchalant. I can do this whenever I want. I can do it fast. It was a really nice finish as well. In another instance where Liverpool were too slow to to react and pressure Luka Modric instead of Tony Kroos in this instance. And it results in a, in a goal as well. It does. It results in that third goal, which I think in my mind is one of the more important ones from this game. I say that as though there were nine goals or something like that. Madrid only had the three, but this one to me was so important because Liverpool come out. They obviously have made the change uh, with Thiago coming on. They look a little bit more resilient. There's more pressing. Thibaut Courtois, I think, struggles with his distribution because they're pressing him so high. They get that goal back, and it feels like, okay, Liverpool have figured some things out. They're going to have this whole second half to maybe get an equalizer. But if nothing else, it's 2-1. to one. They can go to, uh, to the return leg and maybe just get a goal. They'll be okay. And then Madrid add that third, and it still exposes, Joe, to your point, some of that slowness from the Liverpool defense, some of the hesitation, but also some of the fluidity of that Madrid attack. And now I find myself wondering, do Liverpool have a way back? I'm assuming they do because they're a very, very good team and Madrid can slip up on occasion. It tends to be against worse teams. So maybe if Liverpool just changed their name to like Cadiz or something like that, then maybe they can get away (laughs) with it. But that aside, Graham, do you see any bright spots for Liverpool? Do you see ways back? Do you see things that they can kind of focus in on? Or do you think it will just be stick with the 4-3-3, get everybody in the most comfortable position, do what we normally do and hope it works this time? Um, that's a difficult question to, to, to answer. I think that, I think the second half performance, you, you have to take some encouragement from that. It felt like okay. the, the way that Klopp, I mean, I assume, I assume it was Klopp's instructions, but the, the way that Liverpool in the second half, to me watching it, it felt like the first half they were trying to find intensity in their passing. And just because their passing was so sloppy from Alexander Arnold, Allison, Phillips, Keita, Robertson was sloppy in the ball, Quebec, all of them were struggling to find passes. It just felt like that intensity wasn't coming. And the, and the change in the second half was, for me, in that they were finding the intensity in the running that they were doing on the ball. And so it, it seemed like there was a, a, a number of players who were much more willing to, to take a player on and, and find some space through the centre of the pitch. So I guess maybe through that, that is maybe uh, an approach that might work in the second leg. I mean, you can never rule out Liverpool, obviously, a um, little bit of a cliche answer going back to Anfield. I know there's not going to be any fans there, but it was only two seasons ago that they overturned a you know a three 0 first leg defs against Barcelona. So they they certainly have the the quality to score goals. I just question whether this defence is good enough to keep Real Madrid out 
um, in, 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 in any game at the moment, and particularly with Vinicius and Benzema in this sort of form, and I, I just feel like they're going to get one. Joe, this is this is kind of like a, a basic question to end upon, but we're going to do it anyway. Graham's point about the pundits and everybody sort of predicting Liverpool, everybody feeling like they've got the win against Arsenal, Madrid are vulnerable, they've got injuries, they go, they've got players that aren't going to be playing that would very much help them. This feels like an easy Liverpool win. It reminds me a little bit of the Copa America Centenario, a game that I'm sure Graham was watching when the USA played Argentina, and all of the pundits were picking, all of the American pundits, I should note, were waving their American flags and saying, that they picked the USA and only Fernando Fiore very confusingly was like uh, I think Argentina and Lionel Messi are going <laughs> to win this game and then sure enough Argentina and Lionel Messi won that game pretty pretty comfortably and I, I draw that comparison to say that I think in that game there was this maybe false sense of comfort and confidence and I do wonder if that partially explains Liverpool's sort of slow start do you think a more focused sort of disciplined Maybe even just sort of like, uh, I don't know, humbled Liverpool can come out and cause Real Madrid some problems in that second leg. I do. Yeah. I don't, I don't have that same perspective that Graham's talking about from the, the commentators in Britain. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a Liverpool team that's seventh in the Premier League right now. Yeah. They come off of a good result against Arsenal, but it's not the same Liverpool team that we've seen before in terms of quality. They've struggled this season and that's been a huge storyline. Liverpool in the first five minutes of this game, gentlemen, they had two passes that went straight out of bounds. One dribble that goes out of bounds, and then they lost the ball near midfield three times. So that's six turnovers in the first five minutes. If Liverpool want to come back in the second leg, and they can, they just need a 2-0 win or or something to that effect, 3-1 overtime, whatever, extra time. Ooh, wow, I almost got canceled from soccer talk right there with, with <laughs> overtime. My bad, everybody. But, I mean, they just need they need to come out and be tighter. I don't think... I don't think it's it's rocket science to fix this this performance. You pressure the ball more defensively. I'm not saying you have to high press every single second, but you do have to pressure the ball in midfield so you don't get exposed like they did on the second goal and then again really on the Modric pass into the box for the third goal. That's step one. And then just tighten your possession. I think Thiago will help with that. He won't cure that, but he can help with that. And then, and then you're in a much better spot. So yeah, it's absolutely possible for Liverpool to come out of this result and come back in that second leg. Will they? I have no idea. All right. What I'm hearing from Joe is that this was the ultimate rope and dope game. Liverpool wanted to lull Real Madrid into a false <laughs> sense of security over the entire 90 minutes. Then they'll go back to Anfield, play a more rigid game, and get the result. Is that about it, Joe? Correct. All right. Perfect. Perfect. They're playing the long game. Uh, anything else from either of you on this one before yeah. we move to Man City Dortmund? Yeah, not a tactical point, but did Mohamed Salah point to Sergio Ramos in the crowd after he scored? It certainly seemed that way. There was, oh, I hope he points, so. He, I he points in the direction of the stand, and there's nobody in the stands other than Sergio Ramos. So, oh, I hope so. <laughs> That's awesome. I was surprised that not, not much was made of that because it seemed, yeah, there was definitely a a, a, a pointed point, if you want to call it that. <laughs> I do want to call it that. And now I'm obsessed with that idea. Yeah, for, for those who don't remember, for like the six who probably have forgotten, uh, that was what, Salah being thrown to the ground by yeah. Ramos in the Champions League final a couple of years ago and the, the shoulder injury that made him not as effective in the 2018 World Cup. I like that idea. I hope he used the same injured arm to point to Ramos as the one that was injured <laughs> in that uh, incident. Yeah, yeah. Just to just to just to prove he's got his uh, come back even stronger. He's got a bigger bicep in that arm now. <laughs> Our points pointy right. inherently is water wet inherently. These are the things that I'm now wondering, Graham. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why I'm here. 
to, <laughs> to pose these questions. <laughs> I look forward to more uh, questions from both uh, Graham and Ryan uh, up next when we talk Man City versus Dortmund. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. We are back to talk the second of our two uh, Tuesday Champions League, UEFA Champions League games, I should say. But first, uh, Graham, Joe earlier uh, used, I think, did you say overtime, Joe? I, uh, I said half of that word and then I immediately <laughs> stopped myself out of fear. <laughs> Uh, there, there are obviously American soccer, there we go, words that uh, I, I'm assuming do frustrate or turns of phrases that frustrate. Uh, Graham, you just used ketchup in the bottle to describe what you hope is the case for Venetius, which I now love and I'm going to steal. That's mine now. Uh, but are there Americanisms that you don't particularly enjoy? Is overtime one that makes you sort of turn your head a little bit? No, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm quite... Um passive in my opinions on americanisms just because of like who I, who I write for and i have to use a lot of them sometimes the one that i just can't get on board with is cleats and i think i've said that mm. on the podcast before not having that and i can't really articulate why i don't like it i just don't like it they're, they're football boots or soccer boots <laughs> cleats is also just not a very I, pleasant word to say like i don't know no, it, I think is, that's it is a little it, yeah. challenging yeah all right, so let's talk some cleats. Let's talk some boots. Let's talk uh, Man City's <laughs> win over Borussia Dortmund. Uh, I think I asked Joe for his uh, tactical analysis for the uh, first game. So, Graham, I'll go to you for this one. What were your expectations for both teams in this game? Because I will be honest, I thought this was going to be another 2 or 3 nil to Man City, pretty comfortable. Dortmund looking not quite up to the races. I think they were better on the whole than I expected them to be, and I do think that they caused City... A few moments of concern slash confusion. I'm wondering where you were on this game. Yeah, for for me, looking at the the city lineup in this game, this this was actually their I think their strongest lineup. I know you would maybe look at that team and say there's not a centre forward, but I, I've said it on on, on uh, previous pods. I don't think the strikerless system for City is actually a short-term solution anymore. I think that, that that's the way you get the best out of these players with Bernardo Silva on paper, I suppose, playing uh, further up the pitch, but really interchanging positions with Phil Foden and Kevin De Bruyne and, and Riyad Mahrez providing, I suppose, a little bit of width and, and he cuts inside, obviously, off the right side. But uh, yeah, going on the form of these two teams... I expected a comfortable win for, for Man City. I was quite impressed with one of the things that impressed me about Dortmund was their, their, their high press. City seemed to be more flustered than I've, I've seen them in some recent games when they were put under pressure. I think if you compare the way Dortmund played this game to how Gladbach played at the Etihad in, in the last round of the Champions League, it, it was night and day. 
Um, and so, yeah, I think that I think this was this was better than as I was expecting from 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 Dortmund. But I still feel like City will have the edge in this tie and they'll get the job done. And Joe, uh, obviously watching from an American perspective, as I was, uh, we assumed we weren't going to see Zach Steffen in goal, but we thought we might see Gio Rana starting. We did not. Instead, we saw uh, Knauf out on the right wing. I saw him be uh, pretty fast. I saw him bring down some balls in pretty tight situations, but then I saw him get dispossessed pretty regularly. A couple different times he gets dispossessed and then has to foul to make up for it. Um, I didn't think it was a bad game. I didn't think it was a great game from him. Did you see anything from him that made you understand why he started over Gio Reyna? I'm assuming maybe it was travel concerns or return from the break or maybe just some fitness things, but I'm wondering if you think there's anything that Kanaf brought that maybe Reyna wouldn't have. Knauf looks like he has more straight line speed than Reyna, and you kind of highlighted it there, but he seems like a much much more of a threat to get in behind physic- physically. Like, that's his game to, to run and be more direct, but also mentally. Reyna doesn't really make those runs in behind. He's not incapable of doing that, but nine times out of ten, he'll come and drop in and get on the ball instead of bursting in behind to get on the ball. I think Knauf is different in that regard. And so maybe if Edin Terzic is looking for a little bit more of a deep threat, you play Knauf. And ultimately, though, I, I think it's what you said, Taylor. I think it's the fact that Giorena is coming back from international duty and, and Knauf has been with this team and is, and is maybe a little bit more prepared to come and start a game like this. And then, Graham, uh, moving from Kanauf to a more seasoned veteran in Emre Jean, I understand why Dortmund bring him in. I understand why he starts this game, because you want that veteran presence. You want a player who's been here before, and you want a person who can run that midfield, who can kind of make sure the youngsters are doing what they need to be doing, but also deal with the more veteran or uh, big-name players like Holland. And I feel like he is a sort of gel player for Dortmund, except in this game, I thought in those first 20 to 30 minutes, he looked Rusty is, I guess, the word I'll go for, but he didn't look sharp. I'll, I'll say it that way, that I saw some misplaced passes. I saw there's one sequence when they're trying to build out and he plays it to City. City get dispossessed and it goes right back to John and he plays it to City again. And it was almost as yeah. though he has like a very weirdly specific colorblindness. And then obviously <laughs> he gives it away for Kevin De Bruyne's opener. Is, is that him? Is that Dortmund? Like, again, is that Dortmund not being quite ready or is that being... Is that City being so good in their press and so sort of difficult to play against that even veteran players are going to look a little bit sloppy? Um, I think there's obviously an element of that, but the, the, the unless I'm misremembering the the first goal, I don't I don't think the the Chan misplaced pass comes from any kind of great deal of of pressure. Yeah, it's it's just it's just right. a it's just a misplaced pass, and and that was really unfortunate because that goal came 19 minutes in and. Up until that point, you could even argue that Dortmund had been the the better of the two sides, at least in terms of the the kind of potency that they had in in, in the attack. And at, at that point, you're thinking City might actually have a a game on their hands, which of course they did have a game on their hands, but still ended up to get the ended up getting the win. But yeah, I, I think this position for Dortmund is is a troublesome one, isn't it? Because we we've, we've spoken previously about them needing a a controlling figure in the centre of midfield. Um, they've had. Axel Witzel in there, who I am, uh, I think I've said before, I'm not the biggest fan of. Obviously, he's he's injured at the moment. Uh, Dahoud, I think, is a is a is decent, but maybe not exceptional in that position. So Chan is just another option they've got, and I feel like they've got three options who are maybe not good enough. And Marco Rosa coming into that team, you're probably going to look to find a long term successor to. To, to that to, in that position, I think I, I saw someone last night saying Chan might be better as as a, as a central defender, dropping him back into central defence, which I thought was a 
an interesting concept because it, it still feels like there is a good player in there, but last night was was not his night. Joe, do you think Dortmund, in trying to solve that one, could uh, take a page from Man City and have Rafael Guerrero go play as another central midfielder? Because I do feel like we saw that. Maybe that's a thing that happens more regularly, and I'm just not watching as much Man City. But it was strangely comforting to see Jao Cancelo becoming another central midfielder, obviously creating a bit of an overload there, but also just a thing that I, I, I think became an early hallmark of Pep, at least at like Bayern maybe, was yeah, the, yeah. oh, the fullback is now a central midfielder, and you have to deal with that permutation. It was cool to see it again. Yeah, we've seen that a little bit from Rafael Guerrero to, to touch on Dortmund quickly. We've seen yeah. that a little bit in the past, and I think some with Portugal as well. I think he did it for Dortmund a couple of games ago. But the way City do it is just, it's different, right? In possession, they'll have Cancelo shift inside, and then when they're defending, they'll have him stay back as a left back. And City actually changed their approach in the second half. Cancelo stopped doing that, and it became more of a 4-2-4, and then it became more of a 4-3-3 when Gabriel Jesus came on, and it was... It was Cancelo staying back deeper, you know, more often and providing width on that left side and Phil Foden coming inside. But yeah, I mean, I'm always down for positional rotations and tactical innovations. So yeah, push Rafael Guerrero inside into midfield and possession and then have him run back out and defend that left side in defense. I want to see it, Taylor. All right. (laughs) As do I. I love when Pep just does random stuff and it works every now and then there is that the massive overthink game for Pep Guardiola usually (laughs) in the Champions League knockout rounds but we did not get it here maybe we're poised for it in the second leg we can talk about that shortly but first let's talk about some more incidents let's start with the Man City penalty that was then overturned uh, via VAR I don't want to debate VAR we're not going to do that I promise but Graham did you have any issues here did you feel like this one was properly uh, ruled, decided, VAR'd, what have you. Yeah, I, th- the, I think the correct decision was quite clearly made. Um, yeah. Other, uh, you know, the only other explanation you could come up with was that Rodri was kicked so hard in the knee that yeah. it hurt his head. Um, of course. But <laughs> yeah, it, it was clearly not a, a penalty kick. And I, I think we're probably going to go on to talk about another notable inc- yeah. uh, incident, but it felt like a pretty poor performance by the referee uh, and the and the officials even extending to one of the linesmen asking for Erling Haaland's signature after the match, which you probably don't want to do, or at least you don't want to get caught doing that. Yeah, it's it's a big one because like we have that uh, if you are attending a game as a member of the media, it's on there pretty specifically that you're not allowed to ask for photos. You're not allowed to ask for autographs. I will admit like one of my very first times covering games was the International Champions Cup preseason game. And I definitely took a photo with uh, Michael Essien. I was very excited for that one. Uh, and I think one with Clarence Sadorf as well. And then I think I got some reproving looks from other journalists and that was the end of that so i will tell myself there just to say that yeah graham i didn't love seeing the ar stopping holland to be like hey 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 man yeah can i get your autograph please my my one uh, off on a tangent my one tale with that is that the one time i did ask for a picture uh, i got refused by sir alex ferguson's security staff after Ah. interviewing him (laughs) so that (laughs) scarred me and i'll never ever ask for a picture from anyone ever again (laughs) <laughs> we we once interviewed, uh, my wife and I interviewed a very, very severe and sort of terrifying uh, government official for a, a Middle Eastern country. He was their head of natural resources. You can imagine that he was had a lot of power. And she got a small photo of him slightly smiling. And it was apparently the only photo that had ever been taken of him with a smile on his face. <laughs> uh, and I said that just to say that that also feels like what the Sir Alex Ferguson situation would have been for you. 
Yeah, yeah. If I'd got any any sign of teeth, then that photo would have had to be destroyed <laughs> for the sake of his <laughs> reputation. Did you just get a firm no? Was that what it was? Like, can I get a yeah. firm no? Yeah, I way. got completely slapped down. And uh, <laughs> as a young journalist, that as it, yeah, that totally scarred me. I'm never asking for a picture. <laughs> Uh, Joe, I'm assuming you don't have any uh, embarrassing stories because you're a consummate professional. Well, man, now I feel like I, I want to have an embarrassing story to provide here. But I, <laughs> I mean, I have other embarrassing stories, but none related to this topic. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, instead, we can talk about another player who was maliciously slapped down, Adairson, just absolutely overrun Clobber. and murdered by Jude Bellingham. Uh, the horror, the horror. Joe, this was the incident uh, that Graham was referring to earlier. Uh, I, I, my assumption with this one is basically that the referee blows the whistle too early because Bellingham gets the ball off of Adairson. It's a bad touch from the goalkeeper. There's no contact there except for when Adairson actually kicks Bellingham, but Bellingham runs through it. Seems like he's going to score, but the whistle goes. It's called back for the perceived foul. And I'm assuming that's why we don't go to VAR because I don't really have any other explanation for this sequence of events. Yeah, I believe you're correct on that. The referee blows his whistle, the ball's not in the back of the net, then it cannot go into that wonderful review process. So, any, Dormund, Dormund feel this one. Dormund are, mm-hmm. are a little bit done, done harshly with this one. So it's Jude Bellingham closing down Ederson after Rafael Guerrero plays a ball forward. It's, it's too far. The pass is too far ahead of Jude Bellingham. So Ederson comes out of his box to clean up that ball from Guerrero, gets a touch, and then on his second touch, right before he takes it, Bellingham just picks his pocket and goes and scores, but not until after the whistle blows. I don't think it was a foul. If anything, Ederson kicked Jude Bellingham as he tried to take a second touch. This is a really tough situation for Dortmund because they they very much could have been level at 1-1, and they were playing well. Graham, you talked about it. They looked good in this game for large stretches of it. They limited City's ability to break them down with their 4-5-1 block defensively. Dortmund did in that first half especially. They looked dangerous in in moments where they were able to play through City's counterpressure and break through into the attacking half. They did a lot of things well. We saw it on the their one goal, on Marco Royce's goal later in the second half. A really nice attacking sequence. We saw a, a decent number of those from Dortmund. But yeah, they, they couldn't pull it all together to actually win this game. And this, this harsh decision from the referee is definitely a part of that. My only little explanation, and it's not even an explanation, it's just trying to get into the head of the official. There was a moment earlier, I think it was in like the 20 something minute, uh, when Bellingham goes in pretty aggressively for a 50 50. And there's, I think it's a call for Man City, it's a kick for Man City. And the ref has a word with Bellingham there. There's no card given, but it's just a, a, like a, hey, calm down, you don't need to be that aggressive. And all I can think is that he still had that on his mind when this incident occurs. And from his vantage point, maybe it looks like, oh, he went in aggressively again. I'm just calling this one. I got to stop this one right now because there's also a yellow card there as well. And I'm guessing that's maybe like a persistent infringement sort of situation. But in the end, it was very much a head scratcher, though at least Dortmund do get that one goal back. But then Phil Foden makes it two to one. Graham, is Phil Foden the most beloved player in England right now? I know that you are not in England, but I'm asking you to speak for, for that country. Um, the most beloved player in England. Wow, that is that is. Uh, I'm not entirely sure who who's top of that list. Uh, I just I guess, assume it's always Harry Kane. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Harry Kane. Yeah, uh, I guess Marcus Rashford, with good reason, is probably quite high in in, in that ranking list. But yeah, Phil Foden is. I think it's it's interesting. This is not meant to. I know I'm kind of shifting the subject a little bit here, but that's fine. It's not. It's not meant to criticize or, or do down Phil Foden in any way. But I think it's interesting to 
contrast the way that Foden is talked about and seen in English media, which is basically like the, this uh, generational talent for England, which he, he might well be, and then contrast that to Jude Bellingham, who is doing what he's doing for 17, uh, 17 years old for a Champions League level club. And I thought was one of the best players on the pitch last night. And yet he's struggling to get into England teams and is getting left on the bench ahead of players, uh, instead of players like, uh, I guess, like Calvin Phillips and uh, like Eric Dyer might be ahead of him in the pecking order there for a, for a major tournament. So th- there's always this um, this argument in English football that English player, young English players should go and play abroad. What have they got to lose? Well, what they've got to lose is it, it's a little bit of out of sight, out of mind. And and I feel like with uh, with with Bellingham, he's he's been a li- he's been a victim of that because. I thought he was brilliant in this game. He's been. We talked about him at the weekend being brilliant, um, and yeah, I thought Foden and him were were fantastic. And as a Scot, it is uh, very hard to acknowledge that England might have two <laughs> players of that ability and potential. Uh, well, Graham, I have more bad news for you. This episode hasn't even been out. I don't know how this has happened, but Stan Collymore has texted me. Uh, he is upset that you said generational talent and would like a word with you. Uh, that crossed my mind as I was using that term. <laughs> <laughs> I hope Stan Collymore uh, doesn't listen to this. <laughs> I mean, he's already messaging, so I think you're in trouble no matter what. Uh, Dortmund may be in slightly less trouble with that away goal, though, again, the winner from Phil Foden uh, doesn't make them too pleased. Uh, Joe, what do you think would be the key to the second level? Do you see a way back for Dortmund? And if so, how can they make it happen? The way back is possible. That away goal is huge, and 1-1 would have been an incredible result for them if if De Bruyne hadn't played that ball into the back post and then resulting in that Phil Foden goal in the 90th minute for City to give them that 2-1 win. 1-1 would have been great for Dortmund, but 2-1 is still it's still doable, like it was with Liverpool. 3-1's doable for Liverpool. So Dortmund need to come in, and I, I think they can roll with a pretty similar game plan. Their idea of, yeah, we're going to sit back in a 4-5-1 in our, in our own half and we're going to absorb pressure and then attack in transition, but then use the ball when we have it in possession to create because we have creative players, even we have creative center backs. We have guys like Mo Dahoud in midfield and, and Royce and Holland up top. I mean, they have talent to do things with the ball. So coming in and finding that balance like they did in this game to create chances but not leave themselves overexposed, I think that's going to be really important. I think I think City did a really good job containing Erling Holland for large stretches of this game. If Holland can find some space in behind, that's going to be really helpful for Dortmund. But there is a way back, and I think approaching the second leg with a pretty similar game plan is a sound strategy. Graham, where are you on this one? Yeah, I think there was there was one moment in this game. I think it was actually from a, a Emre Chan pass where Holland. Um, beats Ruben Diaz for, for pace. He, he runs, you know, 20, 25 yards to get onto, onto a ball and then shrugs Ruben Diaz off the ball uh, with ease, which nobody has done that to Ruben Diaz th- this season. And it, I, it just, it just struck me as if Dortmund can do that more often in the second leg and get Haaland running towards goal, because even though he had a decent game, his main contribution was actually in, I felt anyway, in, in, dropping off a little bit and spinning a pass in behind like he did for the goal for Marco Royce. But if 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 Dortmund can get Haaland himself running at City, that could be the difference. Two more questions about this one. One for Joe, one for Graham. Uh, Joe, for you, in talking about the Emre Jean single pivot sort of situation, do you think that is a thing that has to be addressed for the second leg? And if so, what would you like to see them do? Do they go back three? Do they add more numbers to the midfield? Do they change up the shape? What do you think uh, would work if they need to change it up? 
I I don't think I would change it up. Yeah, Emery Chan has okay. that costly turnover that leads to City's first goal. And you talked about other moments where you turn the ball over Taylor. But I don't think they really have a better option to play that pivot spot. I think the 4-3-3 has largely been working well for Dortmund. I don't think I would deviate from that. One thing that we didn't talk about that Dortmund did do in this game, they dropped Dahoud deeper into midfield. At times, their their midfield looked like a... A 4-2-3-1, their, their shape looked like a 4-2-3-1 with Dahoud next to Chan and then Bellingham up higher, pushing up almost centrally as a number 10. And when you have Dahoud there, he has a little bit more quality on the ball to break lines and, and drive forward. So I think Terzic is aware of, yeah, we need to, we need to supplement Emre Chan deeper in midfield, but it didn't quite pan out in this game. I don't think I would change the approach. I think I would roll the same, kind of the same tactical assessment and, and approach out for the second leg. Okay, so maybe just like more repetition means you're more prepared with some of your patterns of play and you don't give the ball over so quickly? Yeah, and I just don't think Dortmund have a lot of better options, to be honest with you. Well, there's that too. <laughs> yeah, good point. I also, I brought it back to that one just because I wanted to mention that I also have a little bit of blame for Jean because he gives the ball away. Then uh, he basically panics in defense and goes back to defend aggressively, drops too deep, and I think that's why... Uh, who has the who has the goal for the first one? Kevin De Bruyne. Uh, he leaves Kevin De Bruyne to basically cover the goal, and that's why De Bruyne is open. So I'm going to say two mistakes from memory, Jean. Uh, but we've talked about him plenty. My final question then for Graham: We began this with you saying that the strikerless system for Man City is now sort of their default. It seems like a thing they can do pretty readily. But there is the Erling Holland issue in the future of yeah. Lino Raiola. His agent is currently shopping him to every club with money on the planet, I think, or at least in Europe. Do you think that that is a player that Manchester City, obviously they could use him. I think a lot of teams could use him. Uh, but do you think it makes sense for them to change it up with the system they have now to bring him in and evolve again? Or do you think he's the type of player that just makes that change logical because he's so good? Yeah, I wrote about this this morning, actually, and I am split a little bit because tactically he isn't the most natural fit for Manchester City. But I think he, I think he showed enough in this, in this game, actually, to suggest that he is, he is good enough in, in, in the general play. And as I say, he was dropping kind of a little bit deeper to, to spin passes in behind. And I guess that spatial awareness is something that Guardiola looks for in, in, in his center forward. But he's, he's just so good that you, I think you, get him in the door and you kind of build a, a, around him a little bit. I, I, I thought Pep's comments before this game have been, uh, they've been very interesting. He's, he's kind of played down this idea that City would pay a hundred million pounds, which is at, at least I think what Dortmund would demand for him. Um, he's played down the idea that City would pay a hundred million pounds for one player. But then he provided caveats by saying, well, maybe if it's a player who could make a difference over five, ten years, which felt very specific. (laughs) 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 Who's he talking about here? Um, So, yeah, I I mean, get my crystal ball out here. I I think this transfer is one that's going to happen. I think he's going to be a city player. Really? All right. So I do love the idea of them adding very specific clauses. Like, yeah, we're not going to change up our style at all unless a tall Norwegian is available. (laughs) If that's specifically the language, I'm good with it. Uh, gentlemen, anything else uh, to say about these games? Aside from that, we've got the return legs next week. I believe they're both being played on Wednesday. Uh, today, Wednesday's games are being played on Tuesday. It's all very confusing. But either way, we've got two games down, two more to be discussed this week. Anything else from our UEFA Champions League coverage thus far? The return just legs are going to be fun. Oh, go ahead, Graham. You're good. No, I was just going to say a little bit of a factoid that this is the first time in a Champions League quarter final tie under Guardiola that City scored the first goal which felt quite significant in that yeah. every other tie they've played at this stage of the Champions League, they've, they've kind of been chasing their tails from quite early on in the tie. So it feels significant that they are ahead in this one. 
Yeah, okay. That that makes sense because that kind of connects with the idea that maybe sometimes he overthinks, maybe he puts his teams in more vulnerable positions, they concede early, and then they've got to figure a way out. So basically, I think our expert advice is that Dortmund should try to score first. Is that where we are? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's right. that's the big secret. Score goals right. before your opponent and you'll be good. I, I hope uh, Terzic is listening. We know Stan Collymore is, but we hope we have uh, uh, Eddie Terzic as well. Uh, we're going to be back with some CONCACAF Champions League. Uh, I know we're all very excited. I actually legitimately am excited. I mostly just feel bad because we forced Graham into this one. We'll see how he does <laughs> coming up next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Final segment on today's show, we've got two CONCACAF Champions League games. We've got Marathon hosting the Portland Timbers. We've got Alajuelense hosting Atlanta United. But first, a general question for Graham. Uh, I don't know if you've watched the CONCACAF Champions League before. I don't know how much you watch CONCACAF World Cup qualifying. What were your thoughts on the fields, the conditions, the stadiums, everything you saw in these two games? Yeah, so I, I do. I have watched a little bit okay. of uh, CCL before, particularly when MLS teams have made the final previously in, in previous years. But obviously, I'm then missing out on uh, a lot of these stadiums. I have watched some... Concav qualifiers. So I've got a little bit, I, I, I knew kind of what to expect, but I did see Portland Timbers putting out some pictures of the, of the venue and their social media feeds before the game, which I don't know. They kind of tried and walked, walk it back and saying they were just providing some scene setting images, but it, <laughs> the, the point very much seemed to be the dilapidated nature of the stadium that they were, they were playing in, 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 in Honduras. Um, but I've actually got in trouble before with uh, criticizing a stadium. I was actually on the front page of uh, a, a Bosnian uh, newspaper Ooh. for <laughs> for criticizing. That is not a newspaper you want to be on the front page of. <laughs> no, when I was covering the, the US men's national team for a game in Bosnia a number of years ago, 
I ended up in the stadium they were playing by accident. I ended up in the stadium they were playing uh, on my own and it was the worst stadium I've ever been in in my life. And so part of my assignment over there was to write a daily diary. And so I wrote the daily diary about the stadium and uh, got called an American pig and not taking into account the uh, the war, the Bosnian war and everything. But, uh, and so, also yeah. that you're Scottish? Yeah, exactly. Well, I was there for the... I was there for the uh, yeah. New York Times, so they thought I was American. Ah, I but uh, yeah, maybe I should keep quiet on this one. I'll end up on another <laughs> newspaper front page. <laughs> I mean, I was about to ask you more detailed questions about why it was so rough. Uh, I was also going to ask you if you had ever been to RFK Stadium, but we don't need to talk about that. Uh, we can talk about the games themselves. Uh, Joe, you have obviously done um, some previewing of at least one of these teams. I don't know where you are on the Western Conference yet, but that's where we're going to start with the 2-2 draw between Marathon and the Portland Timbers. Uh, just from what you saw from Portland, did this feel like the team that you expected them to bring out, and what did you make of it overall? Yeah, I mean, it is the team that you expect them to bring out. The one guy they're missing that we we probably thought they were going to have is Jeremy Obobese. He would have started over Aspria on the left side, likely. But uh, I believe he had some sort of hamstring injury before this game, and so he's not playing. He didn't play against Marathon. Other than that, it's just Sebastian Blanco who's missing, and he's dealing with, with ACL rehab, and he should be close to coming back. But he's not clearly, clearly not ready to come back into this group quite yet. We could see him next week. I don't know, but yeah, and the tactics looked like we've seen the the tactics we've seen under Gio Savarese. Four two three one, okay in possession, but largely a more of a threat in transition. But in a game like this against Marathon, they didn't get a ton of transition opportunities. So we still saw, despite the fact that Portland couldn't really attack in the way they wanted to, we still saw a good performance from them. I thought, especially in the first fifteen twenty minutes of this game. I thought the way they continued to attempt to move the ball was pretty impressive. That grass was very high. Uh, we knew that there had been a lot of rain, very humid, very windy. You could hear the wind on the mics. Uh, lots of divots throughout this game as well. So that they kept trying to move the ball, though they were more than happy to go with some direct over balls on occasion. That's the uh, phrasing we use for those. Uh, yeah, I thought it, w- it was it was a good start from Portland. I thought they looked uh, to be more in command than I expected them to be because we're still talking about a Portland team that are in preseason. Uh, I don't uh, know where Marathon are in their seasons, but uh, I, I thought that Portland didn't stand out in a negative way. Yeah, you saw, I, I think I saw Mora in the 33rd minute, like already hands on hips, breathing deeply. But I don't really fault him for that because he was doing a lot of running, uh, trying to create, and he does end up getting the opener, which I thought was was a pretty solid opener. I thought the equalizer from Marathon, specifically the ball from Ariaga that splits four different Portland players and it's sort nice. of completely unlocks the team. That was amazing. And then he has a great run uh, for the equalizer, for the second equalizer later on. He stood out to me as being a very exciting, creative player, even though I think he ends up being substituted off due to a concussion. So not the best end there for him. Graham, were there any players on either side that stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the you mentioned there how Portland started in the first uh, 50 minutes. They had a good job of, I thought, crowding out marathon inside the box, getting bodies close to attackers. But actually, given the uh, the surface, which was, uh, shall we say, very CONCACAF in this game, I, I thought they did a really good job, particularly the first goal of, of, of building the attack. So uh, the little reverse pass from uh, Claudio Bravo and then Van Rankin's um, awareness to kind of beat his man and recognise there's a little bit of space out on, on the left. And then the cross is a good one. And then the control from from Mora to, to set up the volley. I, I thought that was actually a, a, a brilliantly worked goal. I know everyone's obviously spoken about the 
the Diego Valeri um, free kick for the, for the second goal. I know it comes back off the goalkeeper, but a brilliant strike from Valeri. I actually thought the first goal was a, was a better indication of the quality Portland can have when they're when they're building through the center of the pitch. So, um, yeah, I thought I thought th- those the players involved in, in 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 that move stood out for me in in this match. And with that that second goal, which we can't call the Valeri goal, we have to call the Torres own goal. Here's the rule that I would like to implement. If if that ball had just come careening off the post and then hit the goalkeeper and went in, fine, it's an own goal because it's not going on frame. It's going away from the goal and then it goes in. That's fine. But when the goalkeeper makes a save and Torres does just get a finger to it and that's what pushes it onto the bar, then it feels to me like he has made a proactive decision and made a good play. And then it seems almost punitive to give him the own goal at the end of that one. <laughs> Joe, are you okay with my new plan of if the keeper makes the save then it becomes a goal even if it goes off the goalkeeper any plan that results in diego valeri being awarded more goals (laughs) is a plan that i support so i'm totally with you there taylor i appreciate that joe are you with the people who were pointing out that eric williamson looked very creative and good on the ball especially in attacking zones in this game yeah, absolutely. He brought more energy in that verse 45. You know I'm asking than we this. saw Then we saw from the USU 23s in large stretches there of their is. time down in Mexico for Olympic qualifying. He looked good, and I think this is another indication that he he really should have been in that roster, and he would have helped the team. I still don't think he would have absolutely remade the team, but I've made that point. I'm just beating a dead horse at this point. Eric Williamson was good, and he's a fun player to watch. Uh, and final question for you, Joe. Uh, uh, we talked about the field conditions that Portland still get the result. Uh, I am of the mind that they will be in a much stronger position and I'm expecting them to go through in the next round. I'll knock on wood for our Portland listeners. Uh, how are you feeling about their chances in the return leg? They should go through. They should go through. All they need to do is win or or draw at a certain scoreline. That's that's less than two to two. So yeah, they absolutely should go through. There's not a lot of excuses that I could come up with for why you know maybe we could justify a performance where they don't end up going through. Portland needs to win the second leg and they should win the second leg. But this game made me excited for the start of Major League Soccer that uh, Portland looked uh, so sharp and entertaining as well. I shouldn't say sharp. I should just say this game was really entertaining. Uh, and it made me excited for uh, more MLS things to come, including the next game we're going to talk about, Alajuelense versus Atlanta United. Gabriel Ince's first game in charge of Atlanta is a 1-0 win on the road. Uh, I was talking with Ince with uh, Felipe Cardenas of The Athletic, and I was saying that like I am still sort of clouded by his time with Manchester United. Graham, you're you're a cultured, learned man of the world. Uh, (laughs) What is your experience with Gabriel Ince? Like, were you excited to see him become a manager? Do you have any thoughts on him, or is it just sort of like, yeah, it's another ex-bro who's now managing? Yeah, well, it's it's an exciting appointment, I think. I mean, I don't know how much comes from the fact that he's just a name that we all know. So, I guess that's that maybe adds a little bit of, of an excitement. But just just generally, I thought this performance kind of reflected what I knew of Gabriel Heinz as, as a player, um, which was Atlanta under De Boer, I'm not sure. It felt like they lost their confidence and it felt like they lost a lot of the kind of work ethic. And I felt like that was back in this performance, especially after the after the red cards uh, and where things are going against them. And I know, and I know obviously that the goal comes from fortuitous circumstances, but I feel like they, they forced that and they made that happen for themselves. And I don't think that would have happened, you know, last year or, or, or maybe even the year before that. So 
yeah, this I think Atlanta are going to be a hard-working team under under Hines. I thought uh, Barco embodied that. Some things didn't happen for him. Some things uh, it was a little bit ragged in his performance, but he put in a power of work all over all over the field. You know, getting shots away. Um, there was one shot in particular which was which was quite quite close. And I thought it was a good precursor for 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 Hines uh, at Atlanta. And uh, as I say, in line kind of with what you knew about him as a player, he seems to have carried that into management. Yeah, and Joe, uh, if for the listeners who haven't read it yet, the uh, Felipe article pr- is pretty much focused on how much of a disciplinarian he is, how the opening anecdote is like the team he was managing in Argentina, Argentina Juniors at the time. I think there's a player with like shoelaces untied, and he says like the only player who could do that is Maradona, or who I've ever seen do that is Maradona. Are you Maradona? Like it's a very kind of in-your-face approach. It seems like that has been his approach, is is like militant training of this team, getting everybody really disciplined and ready to go up to speed, up to shape. And I do agree with Graham then that if they don't have that training, if they haven't put in the work they have, if he doesn't have that perspective, I don't see how they last a second half down a man in that heat in still preseason mode, lest we forget. Like, how much of this win do you think does go to the appointment of Ince? And and I think a broader question, a much broader question, but to me, this feels like a very significant result in terms of showing us what to expect from Atlanta and how good they're going to be this season. So I guess two-part question. The first, how much of the credit for this win goes to the manager? And second of all, am I overreacting and saying that they're going to be a very strong team in MLS this season? You might have to remind me of the second part of that question, but I'll take the first one sure. first. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I just have a memory of a goldfish. So I just wanted to get that out there right now. That's fine. <laughs> I don't, we all do. I mean, I, I guess I'm hesitant to say, yeah, Hinze, he, they wouldn't get this result if, if Frank DeVore was coaching. They only would be able to get it if Hinze is managing this team like he was last night as we're recording on Wednesday. I, I think in the second half, Atlanta, they're down to 10 men and they pretty much sent back and, and make life miserable for Alajuelense. They don't do, a whole lot of crazy tactical things that we've never seen before, right? They're sitting deep, sometimes with a six-man back line, sometimes with a five-man back line with Santiago Sosa in between Anton Walks and Miles Robinson. Nothing they did in the second half made me think, wow, this team is is entirely bought in under Hinze. They are playing in exactly the way that he wants them to be playing. But in the first half, and I think this will address your second question, talking about you know how good is this team going to be? What do we learn about Hinze's approach and how he wants this team to play? I think we saw that in the first half, and I left feeling feeling much more encouraged after that first 45 relative to the second 45, because we don't really learn a whole lot in the second 45, tactically speaking, when you go down to 10 men. But in the first half, it's a 3-4-3 in possession with Santiago Sosa as that middle center back. He's a number six, but he'll drop in like like we see Jackson Yule do sometimes at the national team, or like we've seen other, other number sixes do in the past. He'll drop in, split the center backs wide, and then you've got Brooks Lennon on one side, George Bello on the other side. And those guys are wingbacks, nominally, but they have so much freedom to interchange and rotate with the two number eights and the two wingers. So it was Lennon and Mulraney and Franco Ibarra interchanging on the right side. And then it was George Bello, Emerson Hyman, and Barco interchanging on the left side. In any given moment, any one of those three players on each side could have been in any of the three vertical channels on the wings. It could have been Lennon inside, Ibarra outside, and Mulraney in the middle. Or any any combination of that. That's how... Gabriel Hinze played with Valais Sarsfield in Argentina, his last managerial stop. That's how it seems he's going to play in Major League Soccer and in, in CCL. And that has me excited because I think it's fun to watch. It's, it is reminiscent of what Frank DeBoer tried to build, but if he can establish a culture that DeBoer wasn't able to build, I think he'll have a lot more success. 
Uh, one player Graham already mentioned is Ezekiel Barco. I came into this game at halftime. I, I started it late. So then I went back to see what incidents I had missed. And obviously there's the red card to Brad Guzan. I'm setting all this up to say that when you watch that play happen, it's a blonde haired uh, playmaker who plays that ball back that it does get a little bit of a deflection, which is why I think it's so under hit. But in that moment, I thought it was Joseph Martinez. And my immediate reaction was like, oh, man, like that's such a sad thing. Like Joseph's like such such a good player and he's coming back from the ACL injury. Like I, I let him off the hook a little bit and I hope he does like better in the second half. And then I realized it was Barco and I genuinely was like, ah, Barco, you're so bad. <laughs> like it really, there was no patience there. So I'm absolutely revealing my bias. Just to ask you like, like what are your expectations for Ezekiel Barco under Inte this season? How big of a player is he expected to be for Atlanta? How big of a player should he be? And how big of a player can he be? I think he's expected to be a big player for them. They spent a lot of money on him, and they've been waiting for that breakout yes, season. This should be the year. I think he's going to be put in attacking positions that he will like. He has that fluidity, and, and he has the ability to rotate, sometimes be out wide, sometimes tuck inside and play as a central midfielder in possession. He can set the tone on the left side. He can dictate where he wants to be in possession. That's big, and he has the talent to come out and be one of the best players in Major League Soccer. I think... He, all the stars are aligning for Ezekiel Barco to have a good season. Now it just remains to be seen whether or not that's actually going to happen, Taylor. So uh, what did happen is Ezekiel Barco. That's an excellent question to another multi-question question, Joe. Lots Thank of you. questions in there. Um, what did happen is he underhits that pass. Maybe it's deflected. Brad Guzan comes out. There's the red, for, red card for Guzan. Then there's the penalty in the second half that... Uh, I, I really enjoyed, at least on our feed, Graham, I don't know uh, what commentary you got, but it was uh, Alexi Lalas and I think it was Keith Costigan. Uh, or was it was it John Strong and Stu Holden? I can't remember. No, no, you one. had it right the first time. All right, cool. Yeah, and there was there was like, oh, this one will be much more clear. And then they showed again like four more times. And it's still difficult to say. In the <laughs> end, I think that uh, the, uh, I forget who it is for Alavalense, but his head pinging off the ground sort of tells me that he definitely took a shot to the head instead of, the hand, but the handball is given. Barco takes the penalty uh, and 1-0 to Atlanta. Graham, for you, which which one of those incidents was more interesting, engaging? Which one did you find yourself rewatching? Because I think I rewatched both of them like 10 times trying to figure out what happened with each one. Well, it's interesting you mentioned this because I, I was going to bring this up. So you say this was a, you, you say this, the, the, the handball was a contentious handball. And I did know it was a handball, right? But in the highlights packages and the CONCACAF highlight packages. So I watched, I watched the, the Portland game live, but by the time Atlanta kicked off, it was about two in the morning. So <laughs> I skipped on that one, but the, the, the it's not included. <laughs> so, <Interesting>. so <laughs> they don't want us to know. Yeah, Conspiracy. So I was going to bring that up. Was what you know? I I haven't in in the UK getting Concacaf Champions League uh, coverage uh, is is not easy. Let me tell you that. So um, I haven't seen the set the the handball for the penalty in terms of the Guzan red card. Um, I don't know. Like I, I know you're focusing on the back pass there, and it, it was certainly wasn't the, a, a great back pass, but. Felt like Guzan comes out off his line in, a, in a, to an area where he doesn't really need to to you know to to, to be in uh, for me. And we saw this we saw this initially. Uh, um, there was a chance early on where he comes out into kind of a wide area and the shots from a from a tight angle. And so I, I just wonder whether Brad Guzan had I don't know had had itchy feet that maybe that an old Jurgen Klopp. Uh, excuse there, cold feet. What was it, Taylor? Young Klopp said Alison Becker had cold feet or something. Is that uh, what he said? Yeah, one of the excuses for Alison oh, Becker was, was he had cold feet. 
But as soon as you, as, as soon as the eighteen-year-old goalkeeper, uh, you know, Rios Nova comes yeah. comes off the bench, you know, it's like an unwritten rule of soccer that he has to have like a really good yep. game. Um, and and yeah. so it, it really felt that way, though, right? Like I, I, I all, like I wrote that down in my notes. Like he's going to come in to be incredible, and then we're going to get a goalkeeper controversy, aren't we? That is one of my big questions: is was he good? Because uh, Rocco Rios Novo comes in, makes big saves, obviously keeps the clean sheet. But a couple of those saves were like self-inflicted because yeah. he spills the ball, but then makes the ensuing save. He did a lot of, Graham, I don't know if you know this term, but I'm guessing you do. There was a lot of concacafing in this one with him catching <laughs> the ball and falling over when he didn't need to. At one point, there's a free kick given and it's passed back to him, but I think by I think Miles Robinson. And he actively avoids walking towards the ball. He walks away from it to then have to walk over to get the ball, which kills even more time. So I thought it was a comprehensive performance but i still can't tell if if it was a very good performance or a very good reactionary goalkeeping performance joe do you have thoughts on that or the penalty i i think i don't have a ton of thoughts on the penalty i think it is a justified red card from brad guzan and then later for Atlanta yep. united the ball comes off his face it just does it's not a handball in the box even if graham couldn't see it because the broadcast didn't show it on the highlights i think that's telling <laughs> But Conspiracy. I think I think Rios Novo comes in and and he gets the job done and that's the most important thing. It is not a flawless technical performance from him in goal. He parries the ball down and, and opens the door a little bit too much for Alahuelense, but he he does enough to come in and he's 18 years old. He just kind of is getting used to being in Atlanta, coming over from Lanús in Argentina on loan, and I mean you can't really ask for a whole lot more. That. But I, I'm with you, Taylor. It's not a or, I mean, maybe you haven't taken a stance on this yet, but my, my thought is it's not a flawless performance, but it certainly was an entertaining performance and enough to help Atlanta get this win. I didn't know he came from Lanos on loan. I knew he was on loan. That's where Ince was before this appointment, right? No, he was at Valais Sarsfield in Argentina. Okay. Yeah. But uh, I mean, I'm sure okay. this is someone, okay. at least the na- a name that he's heard before. I assume he knows every single youth player in Argentina, you know? I mean, he seems to have that discipline. Yes. Graham, uh, you can be the verdict then, because I'm undecided on... I, I think in the end I say good performance, that he kept the clean sheet, that he didn't let in any howlers and made some big saves. I think a positive performance, a good or bad performance for you from Rocco Rios Novo. I'm going to say I'm going to say good, given the benefit okay. of the doubt. I think technically right. there were a few dodgy saves in there, but it's not quite a sort of to use a to use a, a European analogy. It's not really a kind of Henderson de Gea scenario where you're wanting the youngster to show that he is good enough to start games. I think it's you know it, we all know that Gazan's going to be back in goal soon enough, so it, it's just about keeping the ball at the net, and he did that, <laughs> fellas. I just want and to Grant, say I don't know. Oh, sorry, sorry, oh, Taylor. I just want to say. Really good work from all three of us on avoiding the wrath of Atlanta United fans. I'm really proud of each and every one of us on this show right now. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm sure we'll still incur it somehow. I think even questioning whether or not it was a good performance is probably enough to make them angry. You're right. Taylor at TotalSoccerShow.com. Uh, no, wait, what's your email, Taylor? That's, that's it, right? Yeah. Just, just spam Taylor. I'm just trying to think of like. I just think Frank DeBoer, they probably win this 3-0. How about that? Is that, is that, Perfect. Is that good enough? <laughs> Our work here is done. Perfect. Uh, my final question for this one, I just want to know if Graham was as sort of like, wait, what? Uh, by this one. Strange to see Lissandro Lopez starting for Atlanta United, Graham? Look, Taylor, 2020 was a blur for me. And so I've forgotten who plays in MLS now and who's been left in Orlando. I assume there's some players still in the bubble in Orlando who <laughs> haven't been, who haven't been picked up. 
So at this point, <laughs> Atlanta could have thrown anyone on this pitch and I would have been like, okay, yeah, sure, he plays for Atlanta United. <laughs> just, just a lonely Brexit walking around the bubble trying to find a way out. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense to me. On that note, anything else from either of these games or anything else that we've talked about, uh, gentlemen? No, I enjoyed my CONCACAF Champions League <laughs> um, jaunt. <laughs> I do appreciate that. Uh, Joe, did you as well? Oh, yeah. It's it's back, baby. CCL is back. MLS is almost back. I am thrilled, Taylor. All right. I am thrilled as well. We've got more Champions League games to watch today. We've got more Champions League games to discuss tomorrow. It will be myself, Joe, and Ryan making his return. But Graham, thank you again for uh, taking some time midweek to talk about all the many games that we've talked about today. That is no problem. Always a joy. Joseph, thank you the same. I didn't give Graham his proper title, Graham Ewell. Now I can say Joseph. Uh, thank <laughs> you for taking all the time to talk to me about these games today. Absolutely, Taylor. Listeners, thank you all very much for listening, and we'll talk to you all again very soon. <laughs>